Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith and discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that you're having a really blessed weekend. You can catch the Bridge Builder Program each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We'll also answer your questions through our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org, or contact us through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And it wouldn't be an episode of The Bridge Builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can build bridges between faith and public life. This week, we have a really exciting guest, Dr. Dan Mahoney, who is the author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. Now, often it seems that political movements take on a religious character. They've got their own liturgies and and rituals, their own vernacular, their own dogmas, their own speech codes. Um, And certainly we're seeing this more and more in public today. Um, and Dr. Mahoney is going to be with us this morning to help us unpack that. He is one of the foremost scholars of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, probably the foremost English language scholar of Dr. Solzhenitsyn, and he holds the Augustine Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College, where he has taught since 1986. He's a specialist in French political philosophy, anti-totalitarian thought, and the intersection of religion and politics. Dr. Mahoney, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Oh, my great pleasure. Thanks for being with us today. Tell us uh, uh, why you wrote this book, um, The Idol of Our Age. What is the religion of humanity, and how do you think it's different from what might be called true religion? Well, you know, I, I, for a long time, I, uh, I sensed that, uh, that uh, the sort of unbelief and secularism that was becoming rampant in the democratic Western world was more than simply a turn away from religion, that it was informed by certain presuppositions that man is the measure of all things, that there's no intrinsic uh, evil in the human condition, that the, uh, the fundamental goal of political life was a kind of uh, ideological activism more than a cultivation of the common good, a tendency to blame crime uh, on, uh, on, on societal structures rather than you know, sin and personal irresponsibility. And also I think um, I, I saw that some of these presuppositions were increasingly informing or infecting uh, Christian self-understanding, uh, you know, most obviously with the liberal Protestants and others, but also I think increasingly in the Catholic Church and certainly in its most... Uh, uh, the mo- most progressive wing, and uh, so those were some of the reasons why I wrote the book because I wanted to sort of name and describe what I thought was a dominant uh, source of opinion in the contemporary world. Religion of humanity or humanitarian. Sometimes the term humanitarianism can be confusing because people mistakenly think that I'm criticizing the corporal works of mercy or. Uh, 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 you know, our desire, the, the need to to, uh, to help our neighbor and love our neighbor. But uh, really what I have in mind is a, um, a an approach to 
society and religion that increasingly uh, confuses um, the religious impulse with a desire to ameliorate the human condition, to change uh, material and social circumstances. And again, I think all currents of humanitarianism, secular and religious, share in common a failure really to come to terms with the drama of good and evil in the human soul. For, so, for example, I think very widespread in recent months has been, there's a, you see this growing sense that, uh, you know, uh, that certain activists, people who are woke and all of this, in and outside the churches, have absolute confidence who the victims and who the victimizers in society is. You know, you mentioned Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who famously argued in his Gulag Archipelago that the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. And that means that any movement, any group that is convinced that they embody uh, absolute righteousness and that everyone else is an enemy of the people, you know, getting in the way of progress, that this is a, a recipe. I don't, I don't mean these people intentionally mean to set up totalitarian structures, but this is the logic of totalitarianism. It's a Instead of turning the sword inward, we have absolute confidence who the evildoers are. They need to be excised. They need to be shamed. They need to be banned from the political community, etc. And um, um, I also talk in the book about how uh, we're confronted by an increasingly toxic uh, social ethic that combines what I call limitless relativism with limitless moralism, you know. Uh, that uh, the two seem to go hand in hand, anger with a kind of official relativism. And that's more and more the ethos of our time. People often seem to be confused by this humanitarianism because it seems to share many principles consistent with Catholic social teaching. Are there ways of distinguishing the two ethics even when they appear at first glance to look alike? Yes. Think of Mother Teresa of Calcutta in the, the wonderful book that Malcolm Mugridge wrote, Something Beautiful for God, that brought her to the world's attention. Uh, 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 St. Mother Teresa told Mugridge that uh, she did what she did uh, because she wanted to do something beautiful for God. And uh, I think, um, uh, First of all, uh, and Mother Teresa often said in interview after interview that the spiritual poverty of the West struck her as being in some ways more fundamental and more terrible than the material poverty she con confronted in the slums of Calcutta. Um, so I think um, humanitarianism usually has very little to say about the cultivation of the soul or character. It hardly ever emphasizes personal responsibility. It's often accompanied by a kind of soft sentimentality, you know, an underestimation of sin, an underestimation of uh, the, the uh, tragic dimensions of the human condition. My, my favorite blurb on my book is from the great uh, French uh, philosopher-theologian, uh, historian of ideas, Remy Brog, who says, we're, today we're confronted by what he calls spiritual diabetes. And he says, you know, Christ says to us, love our enemies. But he says the new humanitarianism, the new religion of humanity says, we have no enemies. You know? <laughs> and I think there's a lot to that. You know, that uh, Christianity is a very tough-minded religion, 
but uh, it's often confused with sentimentality. And uh, I, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the wonderful essay by Flannery O'Connor, the introduction of the memoir in Marianne. She was a 13-year-old girl who was severely mm-hmm. deformed, who was taken care of by a group of nuns. And when she died, uh, the children in the home and the sisters wrote portraits of Marianne, and they asked Flannery O'Connor to introduce it. She has these famous words that uh, that uh, 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 sentimentality and uh, uh, a certain kind of secular compassion can lead, tenderness, she called it, can lead to the gas chambers. Uh, you know, we euthanize in the name of uh, ending suffering, you know. We justify abortion on demand that these children will be unwanted. So humanitarianism can have this kind of sentimentality or tenderness can have a very hard and destructive edge. Your comments bring to mind Pope Benedict XVI's speech in Paris a few years ago in which he talked about how the the monks, the Benedictines, they didn't go out to build a culture or a new society or create a new system of economics, but they sought God, and all those things followed from that. seems to be something very similar with uh, Mother Teresa. I think that's right. Well, you mentioned Pope Benedict in the, in the famous and controversial, I don't know why it's controversial, but <laughs> the famous and controversial Regensburg Address uh, uh, Benedict states quite emphatically that uh, Christianity is not a humanitarian moral message. And, uh, and he lays that out, I think, very thoughtfully and firmly. Uh, yeah, Remy Brog in his new book, a uh, uh, new book of his, says uh, culture is a byproduct. And what he means by that is the great cultures of the world are not um, established by people who set out to build a culture. They're byproduct of a more fundamental activities, piety, the search for philosophical wisdom, uh, the building of a political common good, you know, the pursuit of truth through art and literature. The modern preoccupation with culture is completely empty, you know, because, uh, first of all, it's tied to cultural relativism, but secondly, it's an empty category because it's not a byproduct. Culture is this kind of empty substitute for all those moral contents of life that we now think are irrelevant because we've severed, you know, the essential true connection between truth and conscience and liberties. I mean, they, these are the kinds of issues I tried to delve into in the book because I just think there's an awful lot of confusion um, in both the secular and religious worlds about the fundamental questions that undergird human self-understanding and the political common good, etc. Oftentimes in the public square, we are working with people who disagree with us on fundamental issues because we try to find common ground for the common good. Um, How do we work with others, even those who are proponents of this type of humanitarianism for good ends, while recognizing that there are fundamental disagreements and not get subsumed into this idol of humanitarianism? Well, I think what we don't do is sort of fall back on this laziness that says, well, we live in a pluralistic society, so therefore we can't articulate the common good or we can't articulate uh, the truth or we can't defend uh, the ends and purposes that ought to guide human freedom. I think that's one of the great one of the greatnesses uh, of the Catholic Church was always its understanding of the place of, you know, what we used to call uh, natural law and right reason. You know, it, it provides a grammar of, of public life. And um, 
that doesn't have to be presented in an academic way or a, you know a specifically Thomistic way, but it does have to inform our public engagement. And then again, we we make public arguments. We don't always rely on revelation 24 hours a day. But on the other hand, um, a concern for the good life, a concern for what Aristotle called putting reasons and actions in common, uh, always has to uh, be at the heart of our uh, our public life. So um, I think the um, the sort of easy way out is to say, well, we live in a pluralistic society, therefore, you know, the common good or natural law or right reason are no longer relevant. I think that's nonsense. They're permanently relevant because they're the very you know, foundation of social order, the very foundation of uh, free and responsible human beings living together. You noted earlier in our conversation that this false idol, this humanitarian, this false humanitarianism is even present within certain sectors in the church. How can we as a church, you know, counteract that presence and excise it while at the same time still being strong in our work for justice, uh, even social justice, distributive justice, performing the corporal works of mercy? How do we how do we navigate that tension? Well, I think we have to be conscious of the problem. Um, I do think, uh, I think uh, Pope Francis is rather prone toward uh, uh, humanitarianism, but I, I, I think in the joy of the gospel, he said we shouldn't confuse the church's public activity with what he called reckless activism. And uh, from time to time, uh, this pope has said, you know, the church is not an NGO. He doesn't say it enough, I think, but Cardinal Mueller's been saying it quite a bit. He says, look, if we want to understand the we want to remain faithful to the self-understanding of the church if we want to contribute to the common good we have to be uh, we have to realize that the church is not a humanitarian ngo and i think that's very very important and um, and by the way um, i think um, i'm not exactly sure what the adjective social adds to the cardinal virtue of justice but the terms around Look, it was first used by Pius XI in Quadradesimo Anno. That was the encyclical that said no man can be a Catholic and a socialist at the same time. That reiterated the Church's uh, uh, support for private property. As Aristotle and Thomas argue, there can't be liberality, there can't be virtue without people having something of their own. And it's, uh, private property is necessary to ward off state tyranny. Uh, but it has to be used for social functions, for the common good. Um, and I also think uh, we probably need a little bit more emphasis on one of the great treasures of Catholic social thought, which is subsidiarity. I think there's a reflex. You see it with some bishops, not all. You see it with uh, some prominent people in the Church, that uh, the work for justice, uh, it sort of takes on a collectivist form, you know, the, some government program or centralization of power. But that's not really the Catholic way. The Catholic way was always, the Church always warned against an atomistic individualism, but it also uh, warned against the sort of collectivist or socialist confiscation of human freedom. So I think sort of returning to less reliance on slogans, more wariness about bureaucratic tyranny, and um, uh, a kind of revivification of subsidiarity of the 
church's old warnings about collectivism, more emphasis on personal responsibility. Uh, you know, and uh, the idea that, um, you know, every social goal for distributive justice or for, uh, uh, you know, helping the, the, the least among our neighbors necessarily involves a government program. We've got to think twice about that. Uh, again, uh, I think, as the Second Vatican Council said, these are, uh, there are there are certain principles that the Church affirms and teaches, and rightly so, and many of these uh, decisions about how to apply them have to be made uh, through the arts of prudence by uh, 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 by Catholic laymen and others, informed by right reason and by uh, uh, the full resources of the Western tradition and the American civic tradition. So I think we need more education, you know, less, uh, less sentimentality, less sloganeering, and, uh, and more attention to how one cultivates prudent and just, you know, moral and uh, political reflection. We're speaking with Dr. Dan Mahoney, who is the author of The Idol of Our Age, a very excellent and fine book, which we commend to your attention. Dr. Mahoney, we'd be missing an opportunity if we didn't ask you a Soltz and Eatson question. So here's, sure. one, here's one. Why does it seem that uh, the on the great anthropological questions of our day, the former uh, countries of the Soviet bloc or the Warsaw Pact seem to have a bit of a bulwark against some of these ideologies, the gender ideology, et cetera, et cetera, while we in the West are uh, seem to be succumbing to those more and more. What would, what might Solzhenitsyn say to us today um, about some of these challenges and what needs to be recovered? Well, you know, uh, um, you know, Solzhenitsyn was misunderstood. He never, uh, he, he, he said, he always said he was a friend of the West and, uh, uh, that uh, his his warnings were those of a friend. He didn't want us to imitate the sort of slide into nihilism that one saw in the 19th century with the Russian intelligentsia that had a lot to do with the coming of the revolution. But I think there was a kind of it's not universal. It's uh, there's the, those societies are plagued with difficulties, but there's lots of residues of the old regime. But I still think. Uh, uh, as communism lost its legitimacy, many people rekindled an older anthropology, an older wisdom, uh, and um, um, I think um, you know whether it's Poland or Hungary, which are uni- uniformly attacked for not being properly democratic, mainly because they don't want to become, uh, they don't want to copy the slide into nihilism of. Uh, late modern democracies, uh, or it's Russia today. There's just a deep skepticism that human freedom and the common good have anything to do with these sort of new mad ideologies. The Archbishop of Krakow just said uh, the Red Plague is being replaced by the LGBT plague, by which he wasn't condemning gay people, but he was saying this effort to replace human nature replace a common sense moral understanding with a new ideology you know that completely separates the body and soul sex and gender it is it's what it's what uh, edmund burke and his reflections on revolution in france called metaphysical madness so um and by the way it's 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 vaguely totalitarian this idea that human nature can be dispensed with and we can uh, build a new order at will and then coercing people. So, uh, in, in some sense, um, um, I think there's uh, the, the there's greater respect for 
the, the enduring verities of Western civilization in some of the former communist countries than there is in the West. But don't forget, the West today is a West transformed by 60s ideology, by autonomy, by voluntarism, by what one of my heroes, Roger Scruton, calls the culture of repudiation. Repudiate authority in the church, in the universities, in, uh, in philosophy, and just identify freedom with a kind of groundless autonomy. That wasn't always the West, but it's the new West. Dr. Mahoney, thanks for being with us. He is the author of The Idol of Our Age, How the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. He is the holds the Augustan Chair and Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College. And again, uh, his work is highly readable, excellent, and thought-provoking. Dr. Mahoney, thanks for being with us today. A great pleasure. Thanks so much. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and we're going to dive into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what do you have for us in the mailbag today? Yeah, so we've actually had several comments regarding issues of assisted suicide. Chris shared with us on Facebook that he's heard from a lot of people who say, well, I don't believe in assisted suicide. But his response to those comments were that it's not about their beliefs, but that assisted suicide is about patients' rights, the patient's comfort, and the patient's dignity at the end of life. He says that medical professionals are trained to care, heal, and be patient advocates, and that as medical professionals, they should be able to put aside their own personal beliefs and allow patients to choose. So he seems to almost be on the right track in that, yes, medical professionals ought to be providing care, healing, and advocating for the patient's best interest, but yet it seems he's wrapping assisted suicide into that, that best care. How would we respond to someone who believes that causing death is the same as providing care? Well, first of all, we, we know by faith that our lives are not our own and that they belong to God and that we have to cooperate in, with the life he's given us and uh, to work in the context of uh, the joys and challenges and illnesses and lifespan and all those things uh, because we're given our life as a gift, a gift to be stewarded. Um, death is, not, uh, is the enemy on one level, but not the end. Um, life changes, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the context of the resurrection. So there's a, definitely a faith argument as to why assisted suicide is wrong, but we don't need to rely on faith alone to understand uh, why it also is contrary to right reason, the dignity of the human person, and indeed the common good. The medical profession is a profession that is oriented toward healing, and the first thing is do no harm. Um, what's being proposed here in Minnesota is making telling people who have been diagnosed with advanced illness or terminal illness that that uh, assisted suicide uh, is an option to them. So what is is being proposed is that assisted suicide recommendations become part of the standard of care. Now, a doctor is not required to prescribe the actual pills that lead to assisted suicide, but is required to mention it as an option, uh, contrary to the conscience and uh, good medical and ethical practice of many doctors. So it's very, very troubling indeed. But you see in the uh, the question or the comment the elevation of patient autonomy uh, over all other values. 
And again, we get to the back to what Dr. Mahoney was talking about with the religion of humanity and humanitarianism, which really I think can be summed up as trying to uh, liberate the individual from all ethical, social, moral, and cultural constraints to act in a way that he or she sees fit and at the same time provide the most comfortable uh, existence as possible, the two sort of twin pillars of the religion of humanity and humanitarianism. But it, that's not necessarily bound up with what's good either for the individual or what's good for the society. You might argue that protecting autonomy is important and that not really many people want or will choose this. And indeed, the people who are the most vociferous advocates are what we call the white, wealthy, and worried. Uh, it's mostly uh, white folks who've had uh, pretty successful careers or um, have had a lot of significant autonomy and fear um, losing that autonomy or losing that control that they've had over their lives. But protecting the autonomy of some is going to endanger the uh, the medical autonomy of everyone else. And, and ironically, we do have lots of autonomy at the end of life. You don't need to be hooked up to tubes uh, and on and on and go through an intense periods of suffering. What we can do is control our end-of-life decisions through things like advanced care directives, the identification of a health care agent. Um, you don't need to have every extra, what's called extraordinary treatment applied to you. Uh, you can die peacefully um, in many instances on your own terms. And so we do have autonomy at the end of life. But what we don't want to do is institutionalize it because we know in a profit-driven and economics-oriented system uh, that uh, healthcare uh, costs are going to be a factor. And we're worried that uh, protecting the autonomy of some is going to endanger the healthcare choices of everyone else. When care is expensive and killing is cheap, uh, what do we think is going to win out at the end of the day? We just had a conversation about the opioid crisis here in Minnesota in which we saw the malfeasance of doctors, pharmaceutical companies, and insurance companies create a major healthcare crisis. Why do we think that that's not going to be a problem or at least part of the discussion here in Minnesota? The public policy solution to assisted suicide is provide better education about healthcare options, legitimate healthcare options at the end of life, and provide a state where we give the best care possible. And that's Minnesota. We're one of the places with the best healthcare in the world. We should be doubling down as a matter of public policy on better care, not taking the easy way out and giving people a vial of pills to go home and die. That's not compassion and it's not care. Is there any resources that might be available to our listeners on this issue to stay informed, but also maybe resources that they can use for their own planning at the end of life? Well, certainly uh, the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare is something that we're a part of to combat assisted suicide and promote better care at the level of public policy. People can find more about the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare at ethicalcaremn.org. Again, that's ethicalcaremn.org. But also take advantage of the newly redesigned and published Minnesota Catholic Conference Healthcare Directives and Guide to Healthcare Directives. Um, these are really great resources that you can find at mncatholic.org to download or print um, that provide an understanding, a better understanding of healthcare and, uh, and advanced directives, end of life decision making. Uh, all those resources can be downloaded at mncatholic.org and a great way to start thinking about these things and having conversations at the end of life. And we always recommend that people. Uh, uh, whatever stage of adulthood, uh, have a healthcare agent on hand. So before we go, we have just another minute. We want to provide our listeners with a couple practical things that they can do in order to really bridge the gap between faith and politics. 
the state fair is underway and there's an opportunity to go to the education building and visit with your House and Senate members. Members of the House of Representatives and the state Senate will be there to answer your questions and meet you. There's also polls at each booth that you can take uh, and give your opinion on important issues. And a number of issues of concern to the Minnesota Catholic Conference are on those polls, among them school choice, immigrant driver's license, abortion, voter restoration, and the counseling ban. We encourage you to get over to the education building if you're going to the state fair and uh, speak to representatives about key issues that matter to Minnesota Catholics and to you and to take a, a part in the state fair poll by both the House and the Senate. Another reminder that we've got a great event coming up on September 4th. Uh, Join all of Minnesota's bishops for the Minnesota Catholic Conference Fall Study Day at the Carondelet Center from 9 to noon. We're going to have Tim Carney, uh, who's been on our show, uh, talk about his book, um, alienated America. We've got a distinguished panel of respondents. It's going to be a really great morning to deeply think more deeply uh, about what's going on in our culture and what that means for politics and public life. Thanks for joining us today on The Bridge Builder. We are sadly out of time, but don't forget you can help others bring the Catholic faith into the public arena by becoming a sponsor of The Bridge Builder Show. Let listeners know that you support bringing Catholic faith into the public life. If you're interested, email us at show at mncatholic.org for more information about sponsorships. Remember, you can send in your questions to our mailbag at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Finally, catch up on any shows you missed through our podcast app, mncatholic.org slash podcast or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross, have a blessed weekend.